Okay, we're reading from Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 14 down to verse 30. The parable of the talents. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more to be given, and he will have an abundance. But, for the, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thank you, Dagmar. I'd just like to welcome up um, Tim Myers, who, uh, Pastor Tim Myers, who's come to present and uh, speak to us in the Word of God. And we... Uh, yeah, we look forward to hearing from you today, so thank you. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Wow, that's a bit boomy, isn't it? Shall I pull that away a bit? And I'm very impressed with you blokes being here and some of the women, and um, I figured that, that even fewer would be here today because you'll all be up till really early hours in the morning watching the ashes. It didn't happen, did it? Uh, well, look, yeah, it's great to be back with you guys and, um, and, and women. And, uh, you know, this story is a very familiar story. We heard it once in the kids' talk, and we've heard it before, and we just heard it read out again. And, 
You know, I actually wouldn't need to say very much, I suspect, for you to be able to figure out some basic principles from, from a story like that. And yet there are some deeper things going on in that story and the relevance of that story to us now living in Australia in the 21st century is quite profound. And so I'm going to suggest to you that actually there are some fresh things. There always is anyway in God's Word. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit is to bring fresh, uh, a fresh insight into what he's saying and to apply that to, to your life and to my life. And I have to confess that I don't know that I ever read this story without thinking, you know, God, I, I, I really wanted to make the most of whoever it is you've made me to be. And forgive me because I know that I don't. And so that's what I'd like to invite you to do this morning, is just to reflect with some fresh eyes and fresh ears on this very familiar little story about three men. Um, and, you know, the, the context of it is also quite familiar. Jesus told quite a few stories um, uh, sort of around this theme of him going and coming back and what was to happen in the meantime. Now, we know historically that he's gone back to be with his father physically, and he predicted that because he said, if I don't go, then the counselor can't come. But if I go, the Father will send the Holy Spirit to live in you, to, to reside with you, to empower you, to guide you, to gift you. So the exchange in terms of God, God's sovereignty was that in, in the leaving of Jesus would be the coming of the Spirit. And of course, that happened on the day of Pentecost. So we live in this story because we're in the season in between when Jesus was on earth physically and when he says he's going to come back. And so this question of investment and stewardship is one that every single one of us needs to face as, as, as Christians. And there's also some things about this story that may, may not necessarily be that familiar culturally, but back then it was, they, they, were, they were quite familiar things. For example, servants were often given things by their masters, particularly if they were wealthy men, to invest and in this story, of course, we've got the master who, who obviously is representative of Jesus and the three servants, one who's given five, one who's given two, one who's given one. The first two set to work, do what they can with what they've got, but the third one buries what the master gave him. Now, some of you know that I, I was brought up as a MK, a missionary kid. So my parents um, lived and worked in Papua New Guinea for all, for all of my childhood. So I grew up in the jungle. And, uh, and it was a great place to grow up in, on the north coast of PNG. It wasn't just a great place because it was tropical and there was jungle and great beaches and reefs and, you know, animals. And, but it was also interesting because where we grew up, uh, on the north coast of PNG, it was um, in the decades immediately after the Second World War, and and there was a lot of war junk left over, everywhere, and I mean everywhere. We had an anti-aircraft gun emplacement in the backyard of our house. It was still there from the war. There were landing barges, rot you know, rusting away on the beach. There were crashed aeroplanes in the bush, which we often found. There was unexploded ammunition dumps all over the place. There were bomb craters by the thousands all over Weewak. So this place, in fact, on a, on, a, on a king tide on the Weewak beach, you could still find 
the bleached white bones of American servicemen rolling around in the surf. That's how recent and how confronting it was. So for little boys growing up in this, it was just a big adventure. And we'd find stuff and bullets and helmets. I had, a, I had a helmet with a bullet hole right in the middle of it. I used to wear it around the town that we found in the bush. Well, one of the things we used to do, because it was a place of you know, interest historically, was we used to rummage around to try and find stuff where we knew there was stuff to be found. And on one occasion, we were digging around an old Japanese emplacement. And there was unexploded shells. There, was a whole, there were boxes of unexploded bullets and things which we found. I won't, I'll tell you another time what we used to do with those. But um, on this particular occasion, we, we dug up a metal box. It was just beneath the sand. It was covered in vines and weeds, but we were rummaging around seeing what we could find. We found some old rusted rifles and helmets and bits and pieces, thousands and thousands of artillery shells, you know, that had been used. But on this occasion, we, we dug a box out of the sand. It was actually, it was a metal container. It was an ammunition container. You, you still find some of them down at, you know, Aussie Disposal, that sort of thing. But these were the real thing. And, uh, and it had a lock on it. And we thought, oh... Oh, what's in this? Because it felt heavy. Now, normally there was rounds in them, unexploded, unused rifle rounds. But this one was locked. So we got an old shell and we smashed it on the lock and knocked the lock off it. And we opened it up. And, and it wasn't empty and it wasn't full of sand. Usually it was. Um, it, but it wasn't full of unexploded rifle shells either, you know, bullets. It was, it was absolutely full to the top, packed in tightly with money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, I'm like 10 years old, right? My brother's there and the local village kid is like, oh! So we, 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 were, we didn't know what to do with this. Now, we knew one thing. We were, we were not going to tell mum and dad because we never, we never told mum and dad anything. So we decided that what you did, because we'd read Treasure Island and apparently what you did with treasure was you bury it. And you make a treasure map, and that's exactly what we did. We, we, we found a big tree, and we paced out 10 paces to the south and five paces to the east. We dug a hole, and we buried it, covered it over, put some vines over, and it became our secret, this ammunition box of money. Well, the months went by, and my old man, who was by that stage the director of Mission Aviation Fellowship, the mission organization that he was a pilot, by that stage, he was, he'd been promoted, and all of a sudden he got promoted, and we had to come back to Australia. And we were a missionary family. We moved a lot, you know, always saying goodbye to people and hello and goodbye. It was just a life of constant moving and people coming and going. And before we knew it, with all of the fuss and the stressing out of moving, because I, I got four brothers, so it was five little boys my mother was trying to raise in the jungles, five little savages we were. So it, it wasn't until we were on a, an aeroplane from Port Moresby to Cairns, having permanently left Papua New Guinea, that my brother and I remembered. It's like... <laughs> now, I'll tell you at the end what happened with that box of money, but that's what reminds me of this story. That's what one of these blokes did. He buries his money, or he buries the money that he was given. Now, what I want to talk about this morning is, is it... Is it possible that that's, that's what we do? That, we, that we're in the process of burying the things that God has invested in us because it's incredibly likely 
that it's some, in some way in my life, that's what I'm doing. And this story of Jesus has some really simple principles that I'm hoping you'll remember when you read this story from now on. So let me share them with you, these three little principles. The first one is that God has made an investment in you. That God has made an investment in you. Now we know from the Bible that every follower of Jesus has been given spiritual gifts. Now, I don't know what your spiritual gifts are. I suspect you're in the process of discovering them. But the Bible tells us that every single follower of Christ has been given the capacity through the presence of the Spirit to do things that bear eternal fruit, spiritual gifts. But it's not just spiritual gifts that the Bible says God has given us. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that every good gift comes from heaven above. Everything we have comes from God. Your natural talents. You know, we think of the word talent. By the way, in this story, it's the parable of the talents. That's a really bad word because it's actually not what the word meant in the first century. We don't have a word like the Greeks had for talent. It's translated talent. The closest we come is not an Australian English word, but an English English word, and that's the word pound. You think about the word pound, it has two meanings. One is currency, the English pound, but it's also a word that means weight, how heavy something is, 50 pounds. That's the same as the word talent. And in the original language, we're talking about measurement of weight of silver. Now, it's translated money in this story, and that's okay. But what we miss, and in fact, I'm really glad that when you did the kids' talk, you brought this out because... Uh, one talent of silver was a lot of money. We're not talking spare change. Two talents was double that, obviously. Five talents was a lifetime of wages for the average servant. So if, you, if you're a, you know, the average punter, if there are any blue-collar workers in here, you know, tradies, for example, although tradies make a reasonable amount of money these days, but nonetheless, if you think about the average, the average Aussie wage, they don't make that much money. They don't. All right, well, there you go. So there's the man with the one over here. So... You think, of a, you think of a lifetime of wages. Let's just say the average wage is, what, maybe 40 or 50 grand baseline sort of wage over 40 years. That's two, that's two mil. So that's a lot of money. Now, that's ironic because, as you noticed with the kids' talk, when the master comes back, he says, ah, well, a good job. Yeah, you've been faithful with a few things. Now, that's another, another point we'll come to in a minute. The key point, though, at the front end is that it's, a talent isn't the ability to play music. I, I used to play music. In fact, I played music for a living after, you know, when I went through uni and a couple of years after uni and um, toured a bit and did some commercial work and cruise ships. And it, w- it was great fun. And sometimes you come across people who are incredibly talented and they don't really know they are. And that's exciting because as you see them discover and work on, and then you come across people who think they're really talented and, you know, they're they're sort of not. This word isn't about your natural abilities, even though the Bible tells us that even your natural abilities come from God. Your education, your, you know, your, 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 your wealth or, or, or your lack of it or your family history, um, 
everything that you are, the scriptures say, is an investment of God in you. It's a really important principle because it means that we don't actually own anything. We don't own anything. You are not your own, Paul says. You've been bought with a price. And that can change the way you approach your life. But we don't have that approach, do we? We actually think as though we own stuff. And just think about the things that create anxiety in our lives. And it's almost all about the stuff we own. God says you don't own anything. Even the third man in the story, what does he say? Here is what belongs to you. It's not mine. You know, when Catherine and I were living in America, we lived in America for about four or five years. My folks lived there for 20 years. We used to house sit. We're living in Dallas, and Dallas is a very wealthy city. I mean, it's like a lot of American cities. You've got immense wealth and extreme poverty within a very close proximity. But we used to house sit um, on behalf of the state. They used to employ theological students to house sit houses that had been left by wealthy men, usually billionaires, whose families were fighting over the estate. And they were, they were sort of intestate. They were stuck in this legal wrangle. And one of these houses we looked after was a classic American billionaire's house with the big white columns out the front, you know, the sorts you see in the southern American states, three stories high, magnificent gardens, big, huge, old trees. This guy had a garage that would have been the size of this building, and it was full of immaculately restored classic cars. He had two Steinway grand pianos, one on the ground level, one on the first level. There were Rolex watches, there was antique paintings, there were masterpieces on the walls, chandeliers. I mean, it was just an opulent mansion, but it hadn't been lived in for 25 years because the guy had been married two or three times. His, His family and kids had fought over stuff and he'd worked his affairs in such a way that they couldn't be distributed until his family were at peace. And they were never going to be at peace. And so they got people to look after this place. And it was all just covered in cobwebs. Because the day he died was the day he left it. And you could walk around this place and look at these incredible paintings on the walls and the valuable jewellery and the cars in the garage and the boats and the piano. and and, And 25 years on, you know what you feel when you walk out, you shut the door? He didn't take a single thing with him. Not a single thing. Because they weren't his. It's incredibly difficult, isn't it? To live day by day by day with a stewardship mindset rather than an ownership mindset. And it's even more difficult in a culture that we live in, which is driven by relentless capitalism that is all about what you have. Your status is all about what you have, where you live, how you look. Even self-image driven by media that tells us you're a valuable person if you look such and such a way, if you wear such and such a clothes, if you have... Think about the, think about the um, celebrity cult that's going on at the moment where you've got celebrity sportsmen, celebrity media, celebrity singers, celebrity chefs. 
My, in my last life, I, I, I was in mission leadership and I traveled the world and I reckon I visited 50 countries where the kingdom of God and the church is undergoing revival and hundreds of thousands of people are coming to Christ. And they, they are completely puzzled at the concept of a celebrity chef. That you'd make celebrity out of someone who cooks. Isn't food for survival? Don't you eat to live? No, you live to eat. These are some of the messages of our culture. I think Jesus would say to us, let it go. It's not that you have to be poor or that you have to be rich, but understand that nothing that you have ultimately belongs to you. So make the most of what God has given you. Live daily with a posture of thankfulness and pray, Lord, help me to be a good steward a steward of what you've invested in me. He loves that prayer. Lord, help me to steward well what you've given me. And keep me from buying into a comparative spirit. Because that's the next point. It says to one, he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. You know what that tells us? It tells us that God's not fair. Jesus is saying that. That the Father is not fair. It's not saying he's unjust. He's just saying he doesn't distribute evenly. And that rubs us a bit, doesn't it? That's a fact of life. That's a fact of God's sovereignty. He doesn't give people the same thing. I've got five kids as well. I was one of five and I got five kids. I reckon there's one phrase that appears more often in a family than any other phrase, bar none. Yeah, and you're laughing because you know. What is it? It's not fair. No matter what it is, it's the dessert, how much ice cream you got. You know, my, I, got, uh, I got three girls. One of them's married and left home now, but she was just the same. And, and, but, but these two, you, I pile in the car a couple of weeks ago. I'm taking them to school. I don't normally run them to school, but I take them to school. And I, I can see in the rearview mirror that one of our daughters, her face looks like the front co cover of Lamentations, right? She's really, you know. <laughs> I said, Mickey, what, what's the problem? Nothing. And I'm driving. I said, no, no, it is. What's the matter? Nothing. No, Mickey, Mikaela, her name is. What's the matter, sweetheart? It's not fair. I said, what's not fair? And it was her turn in the front, right? Now, her mother has this complex mathematical algorithm sorted out, <laughs> which never goes wrong, by which she is able to figure out whose turn it is in the front because there's school trips there and back, there's sport, there's music, there's shopping, and each of these have various weightings of front frontedness, you know. And somehow, my daughters know, and my wife knows, oh, I've got no idea. And I'm thinking, good night, sweetheart. I mean, you're going to go go to school tomorrow. You're going to sit in... No, because that's Wednesday, and it's, 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 it's Emma's turn on Wednesday, but on sport on the way, it's my turn, and it's not fair. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord Jesus, help me here. Now, it's, it's sort of annoying and humorous when kids do it, but it's tragic when adults do it, but that's the very nature of our culture, is to drive you to compare yourself and gain your sense of value by what God has given someone else. You want to sentence yourself to disillusionment? 
then buy into a comparative culture. But that's what we do. It's not fair. It's not just true of the general population. It's even true of people in ministry. Those of you who've been in ministry for a while, I've been to so many pastors' conferences, leaders' conferences, sat down with guys in, in leadership, and underneath is this deep-seated insecurity about whether God is going to do in my church what he's doing in the church up the road or in the sphere of my ministry or whether I'm as good at this or as good at that. Brothers and sisters, you don't have to be anybody else because God knows who you are. He doesn't ask you to be anybody else. He doesn't ask you to produce what other people produce. He doesn't ask you to measure your life in the same outcome terms. He doesn't, we don't all look the same, do we? We don't all have the same abilities. We, you know. In fact, I was just thinking as I'm talking there, about my, 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 my older daughter, Heidi, who's now married, and she's a beautiful girl, lives up in Cairns. She used to be a competitive swimmer, like in the elite Carey swimming squad when she was about 13. And she was a crazy, obsessively competitive little thing. And we'd go, I'd take her to swimming. You know, five o'clock in the morning, she'd be for two hours and go home next morning. That's what she did. And, and she was very good at it. And one, one morning, about 7.30 after swimming practice, she got in the car. And I, cause she had the same look on her face. I said, what's the matter? Oh, no, no, what is it, sweetheart? And she said, look. And she's in a bathing car. Now, she is an athlete, right? She's done gymnastics. She's a fantastically gifted swimmer. And uh, she's, you know, like fully athletic as a 14-year-old, wherever she was. And she, she pinches her hip like this. Look at this, Dad. It's disgusting. I said, what's disgusting? The fat, she says. And, I, you know, I, I sort of giggled at one level. But underneath, I thought, what a sad essay that a 14-year-old kid who's beautiful, athletic, and healthy has a diminished self-image because someone else has measured or she is measuring herself in terms of what she's seeing in the media or some magazine. And I was, I was sort of half satisfied when she decided to give it away because of the drivenness that can be a part of our culture. Now, that's not to say that we don't do well with what we've got and to commit to things and be, the, be as best as we can be. But it's not driven by a desire to compare ourselves with others, but rather to say, Lord, what have you given me? Have I got one? Then help me be faithful with the one. Have you given me two? Well, help me be faithful with the two. God's made an investment with people, but he hasn't done that equally. Be really, really careful about orienting your life around a comparative culture. Because God is saying, don't. You don't need to. I know exactly who you are. I know what I've invested in you, and I know your potential. And I have given you, the book of Peter says this, you have everything you need for life and godliness through Christ. Everything. You don't have to be anybody else. You just have to be you. Day by day by day. Giving over again what God has given you 
with thankfulness and worship and praying that he will use you and trusting him with the outcome. To me, it's incredibly liberating to take on a perspective, Lord, I don't even know my own potential, but keep me from presuming more than you are planning to do. Keep me, though, as well, from burying through disobedience or self-centeredness or whatever, insecurity, what you've given me, but to live freely in you and trust you. To one he gave five, to another one two, to another one. And, and here is, the, for me, the liberating component. It's the five words in the original text, each according to his ability. Do you know why that's so liberating? Because as you said in the kids' talk, we don't have to. And we are called not to live outside the confidence that God knows our potential. He doesn't make demands of us that we have no capacity for, to fulfill. Now, the enemy will tell you he does. But the Bible tells us he doesn't. I was reading not long ago the story of a man by the name of Ted Turner. Some of you know who Ted Turner is, the founder of CNN, one of the world's richest men, one of the, one of the world's most influential men, one of the world's most successful men. He was giving an address to his alma mater, to the university where he studied, and it was one of the, it was one of the Ivy League universities in the United States. Now, Ted Turner had a very sad relationship with his father. And his father was a driven man who was never satisfied. And even after his death, Ted Turner still wrote. In fact, while he was alive, his father wrote such a cruel letter to him. And he was, by this stage, a very successful businessman. His father wrote such a cruel letter to him that he published it in the New York Times to embarrass his own dad because he was so hurt by his father's performance-driven relationship. So he was giving this address at his university graduation you know, event, and the, the address, he was invited to speak on success. Now, by all measure, this man was the most, he was an appropriate person to have come and speak to a university about success. So he gave this address about success. And, and it was a brilliant and compelling and challenging address. And at the end of the talk, he lifted up off the lectern and he had a copy of an American magazine called Success Magazine. It's like BRW Rich 50. It's the elite money makers of the world who, who, who sort of appear and their stories and their techniques in, in becoming successful. Success Magazine. And in this particular issue, his face was on the cover the picture of the successful man. And in front of all these graduating students, after giving a talk on success, he holds up this magazine to the sky. And he looks up and he, he cries out to his dead father. Is this enough for you, Dad? Is this enough for you? Am I successful yet, Dad? And he threw the magazine on the floor and walked off was one of the most poignant moments in the history of that university. There was a man who was driven by a relentlessly unsatisfiable father 
Now, that's what the enemy wants you to think about your Father God. And that's why Jesus builds into this little story those five beautiful words, each according to his ability. And notice that when the one with the five came back and he had five more, the, the master said, well done, good and faithful servant. Ah, you've been faithful with a few things. Come on, I'll put you in charge of many things and come and enjoy your master's happiness. But when the one with the two came back, what does he say to him? Exactly the same things, word for word. In other words, I have the capacity to please my heavenly father as much as the apostle Paul did. It's not because of something that's in me. It's because of the grace of Jesus Christ and the fact that God has only called us to be faithful with what he's given us in the context he's, he, we live, even with the pain we carry and the baggage we drag through our lives from family history and brokenness or whatever else might be, even in our physical disabilities or, or whatever it might be that God knows you and he loves you and he's invested this beautiful gospel and his very presence in your life and he's pleased with you. And what Jesus is saying is, live your life with a posture of investment. Trust me, you have everything you need for life and godliness. Don't look to the one who has five, but don't bury what I've given you. Because it'll all pass away. Moths will eat it, rust will destroy it. But not you, because you're mine. So live your life on earth with heaven in mind from an eternal perspective and you'll feel your master's embrace. That's what Jesus is saying. Of course, the sad one is the one who buried it. Now, we know from the language of the text that he actually didn't trust the master and he impugns his character. You know, you, 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 scatter, you, you, you harvest where you haven't scattered seed. That's an integrity issue. So he's saying, you're not even honest. I don't like you. And no, I want to live my own life. Yes, it's yours and I know you, but I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to bury what, what's yours. And Jesus says, what a, what a foolish thing to do. Don't do that. Well, my brother and I were foolish. Because a few years after we left PNG, my old man came into our kitchen one, one night after work and he said, hey, kids, guess what? We were around the dinner table. He said, MAF is short of a couple of pilots this summer. It's Christmas. So I'm actually going to go back and fly for a couple of months. So we're going back to WeeWack. And I'm going, <laughs> And my mother got all sentimental, you know. Oh, it's going to be lovely. You'll be able to see your friends. We can stuff the friends, but we're thinking about the money, right? So, so we climbed in the back of a little Cessna, all seven of us. My old man was flying. We took off from Moravian Airport. We flew across to Adelaide, got some more petrol, up to Port Augusta, stopped, landed, got some more petrol, stayed overnight, and then up the way, up, up the middle of Australia through Fink and Alice Springs. And, you know, hour after, we said, can we just get there? Up to Normanton, around to Cape York, Thursday Island, go through customs, across to Daru, Port Moors, we up to Mount Hagen, and then finally we're on the way to Weewak after four years. And we're thinking, thank you, Jesus, we're going to go and get our box of treasure. 
Well, except that in the three or four years since we'd left, the country had become independent and they had started to clean up the old war wreckage because it was dangerous and, you know, the rest of it. And after we landed and we got in the little mission four-wheel drive and drove, they had not only cleared the jungle, they had built a road right over the top. And I don't know whether it's still there. If it is, don't think about it because it's mine. <laughs> and maybe the Lord in his cruelty just only allowed us to find that money to teach me the lesson about Matthew 25 because we never saw it again. That was it. But I do think about that when I think about my life. And I would like you, when you read this story in the years to come, just to reflect on those few principles that God has invested in you. Enormous riches spiritual riches in the heavenlies, spiritual gifts, talents, education, opportunities, relationships. Jesus said, be shrewd, even more shrewd than the world is in using your relationships to make friends for yourselves in heaven. Thinking about your mates at work, the average punter down the street, the blokes that at, at school, your, your colleagues, where, wherever it is, think about all that you are in the context of the investment of God in you and pray every day, Lord, help me to see these things through the lens of your spirit and to live for you. That he's made an investment in you. It's not the same. Don't get caught up about that. Don't get, let it twist in your guts. Beware the comparative spirit. Learn to be content. As the Apostle Paul said, I've learned to live with much and I've learned to live with little because your treasure is in heaven. And third one, don't bury what God has given you. Allow God to use you to sow seeds that bear eternal fruit. You may, you may never even see the fruit, but that's God's business. Just trust him, live for him, and enjoy his embrace. All right? Yeah, let me pray. Thank you, Father, for this ancient story, but one that is so relevant to us in our context. Help us to remember all the good things you've given us. Keep us from being drawn into an unhealthy comparison or competitiveness, but keep us from wasting or burying the treasure you've given us, we ask. For Jesus' sake, amen.